Get your personal copy of the 1978 Chicago Statement on Inerrancy ready, because we're going to do a read-along, follow-along study of these words from, what, 40-plus years ago? No, 40-ish years ago? Yeah, 40-plus years ago, right? Yeah, 45-ish almost. 45 years ago! It is 45 years ago. Man! I don't need reminders like that of how old I am. Anyway, Article 14 of the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy says, We affirm the unity and internal consistency of Scripture. We deny that alleged errors and discrepancies that have not yet been resolved vitiate the truth claims of the Bible. Anything that uses the word vitiate is all right with me. This is the Faith Debate. I'm Troy Skinner, joined by the Faith Debate panelists, uh, our regular panel, rare, like, Kind of the irregular regular panel, but this is supposed to be kind of the regular panel actually pulled together for uh, for a series of shows on inerrancy. David Forsey, pastors of church uh, that's in the, well, he, he's all over the place. He's all over the place. Sometimes I think they, they just, the, it's a house church, and I think they just, different houses that are part of the church just host on different weeks. I think that's what they do. Yeah. So that's a that's a, that's an interesting way to take some of the pressure off different people. And I guess you got to have good communication skills so they don't show up at the wrong house on the wrong week. But other than that, <laughs> so that's David Forsey's story. Uh, the story of the Razvies can be found at conqueredbylove.org. Conquered by Love Ministries is the organization they founded probably 25, 30 years ago now. <laughs> <laughs> Not that long ago? About 45 years 45 ago. 45 years ago. Uh. So uh, Imran Razvi was around it's, for that founding. It gets longer every week you I'm say not sh- I'm not sure if Daniel was around for the founding or not. That I don't know. But uh, uh, Daniel and Imran, they, they share a last name, but they're not related at all. Now, that would be an example of errancy. <laughs> they are related, their father and son, and uh, they pastor a church in Thurmont. And I'm not sure if I mentioned it, but I do want to mention in case I didn't, uh, the church I pastor is Household of Faith in Christ, and our website is householdoffaithinchrist.com. Uh, that's important in this context, because if you want to reach me or these guys, the easiest way to do that is to go to that website, householdoffaithinchrist.com. All my contact information is there, and then I can put you in touch whoever it is you want to yell at. So, And that, and that word apparently is with an SH sound in the middle, vitiate, vitiate. According to the dictionary, I looked at Oh, so I demonstrate some fallibility in my pronunciation. Yeah, some horse duvers. Some horse duvers. V I T I A T A. Vitiate. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. It means to spoil or impair the quality or legal validity of. Yeah, the main point here, I guess, on Article 14 is, look, the whole Bible holds together. So you can't take one part of the Bible and use it as some sort of a crowbar against other parts of the Bible to split them apart. Like, it all holds together as a one co- cohesive truth. In fact, they don't really say this here, but the, the, the real fact of the matter is you use Bible to interpret the Bible, right? Scripture to interpret Scripture. It, uh, far be it from being at odds with itself, it's holding itself together as one cohesive yeah. main truth, right? All right, so I'm going to do Article 15 and 16 together, and we can comment on those. So Article 15, we affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy is grounded in the teaching of the Bible about inspiration. We deny that Jesus' teaching about Scripture may be dismissed by appeals to accommodation or any natural limitation of his humanity. Actually, I'm going to stop because that feels like we almost need to understand what's being said there. So we affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy is grounded in the teaching of the Bible about inspiration. So what's being said there, this feels redundant, right? So how is it not redundant? That's what I think. What's the specific thing they're saying? They're saying it's inspired, and therefore it's inerrant. They kind of were saying that earlier. 
like in show one when we were talking about this, I think. But they're they're putting so a fine it, point it, on it, that. It's almost as if uh, they're also saying Scripture testifies to its own inerrancy. Right. Right. Okay. Article 16. We affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy has been integral to the church's faith throughout its history. We deny that inerrancy is a doctrine invented by scholastic Protestantism or is a reactionary position postulated in response to negative higher criticism. So here they're specifically talking about the naysayers that have challenged this and they're speaking directly to these academic types. Um, Some would argue that up until about 500 years ago, there was a period of time, maybe a thousand years or more, where the church wouldn't have held to this view at all. And then the Protestants came along and they, they made a big deal about it. And they're saying, no, 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 it was always a big deal. <laughs> it was a big deal to Paul, it was a big deal to, to James, a big deal to Jesus, <laughs> to, you know, to say nothing yeah. of, uh, of Jesus. But, uh, but it's, it is true that there was the reason, one of the reasons the Reformation was necessary is because the church by and large had stopped believing it. And it started to drift, yeah. Inerrancy. It's sort of as, uh, I mean, inerrancy and... The way they're talking about it here, they're sort of saying it's it's sort of like the word Trinity, like it's not in the Bible, but that that is what Scripture teaches. Right, because by definition, if it is God's word, it has to be even right. even though it doesn't use that word. Yeah, and, yeah. And by definition, if you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, yeah, you have a Trinity. All right, so we're all, all right. good with that one. Sure. All right. 17, I'll try, let's see if we can do 17 and 18 together. 17, we affirm that the Holy Spirit bears witness to the Scriptures, assuring believers of the truthfulness of God's written word. We deny that this witness of the Holy Spirit operates in isolation from or against Scripture. And then Article uh, 18, we affirm that the text of Scripture is to be interpreted by grammatico-historical exegesis, we'll define those terms, uh, taking account of its literary forms and devices and that Scripture is to interpret Scripture. We were talking about that a second ago. Mm -hmm. We deny the legitimacy of any treatment of the text or quest for sources lying behind it that leads to relativizing, dehistoricizing, dehistoricizing, well, that's a hard word for me. Dehistoricizing or discounting its teaching or rejecting its claims to authorship. So that first one, Article 17, uh, talking about the, uh, we deny that the, the witness of the Holy Spirit, uh, that, which bears witness to the Scriptures, operates in isolation from or against Scripture. That's an important one these days, it seems to me. Well, that goes back to what I said a couple of weeks ago, is that when, when or if God speaks to you a word, listener, who you are listening, if God speaks to you specifically and directly, when or if he does that, audibly, in your mind, in a dream, however he does it, it will not contradict Scripture, and it will not be against Scripture, and it will not be separate from Scripture completely. So, if it is, if from, it is God. from God, right. So, yep. if you think you have a word from God, and it's different than what the Bible says, I'm sorry, it wasn't God talking to you. And that's what we're trying to say here. This, and we would encourage anyone to not just say off the top of your head, does it contradict Scripture to your knowledge, but if you think you have a word from God, search it. the Scriptures to affirm that it is. Because that's very common right now, this era, right? Particularly well, in American told Christianity. Me this. I had a feeling. I'm a, I'm a spiritual person. I, 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 got a, I got a word from God. 
People say that a lot. Yeah, the Holy Spirit told me. And that becomes a problem. I mean, some things you can't tell, right? The Holy Spirit gave me a message. I should move my family to Arkansas. Okay, I can't really prove or disprove that from Scripture. That's a, that's, that's a hard one to test. Uh, and so I'm not sure exactly what you— but you could have an impression from, from God. God. I mean, there's a, a story actually uh, a couple years back, two, three years ago maybe, probably three or four years ago. Jeff Durbin, it's a pretty well-known name in a lot of Christian circles. Pastors a church uh, in uh, Phoenix called Apologia. Um, and um, as the story goes, he was in the middle of talking to his congregation, like at a church meeting or something, about there was this need, there was this family, this woman who uh, was about to get an abortion. And Jeff and their team uh, that were witnessing at the clinic were saying, please don't kill your baby. Please don't kill your baby. And the woman said, well, uh, the baby has spina bifida. I, I can't care for you know, the baby when it's born. I, I just need to do it. No, we'll find somebody that will adopt your baby. So he's sharing this with the congregation saying, somebody here needs to step forward you know, and help this woman like kind of thing. Because we said, we're going to find somebody to help you so you don't have to kill your baby. And as he was sharing with the congregation, I don't know the details of how he would articulate, but the gist of it was he basically felt God tell him in that moment, as he's talking to the church, you and your wife need to adopt that child. Right. And so he, in the middle of his thing, said, you know, I, I feel like maybe I'm supposed to, I don't know. I got, and they prayed through it. They tried to they sought additional counsel from other people in the church and stuff. And all it did was just confirm, yeah, I, I think maybe that's God talking to you. So they decided to go ahead and move forward like God told us. Now, there's no way to specifically say that from the word. But here's the cool thing about that story. They're doing all these, um, uh, what do they call it? What they do, the, the, the imaging. Ultrasound. The ultrasound. Thank you. I don't know why I was losing that word. They're doing ultrasounds and all these tests. And yeah, baby had the spina bifida and it wasn't looking good. And so it's time for the birth. The woman's giving birth and they have a team ready in another room to operate on this child immediately upon birth. So she gives birth and they're ready to rush the baby to the other room for surgery. And the baby is completely healthy. Nothing wrong medically with the child at all. And the doctors, they're dumbfounded because they had done all these series of ultrasounds and these tests. They, they knew for sure it had spina bifida. Like a couple of days before the birth, it had spina bifida. And then at the moment of birth, it didn't. Now, that tells me that Jeff Durbin heard from God at such a time and in such a way that it would bring such glory to his still working in the world today because it was a high-profile situation where he felt this impression that I need to adopt this child, so it wasn't a secret. And then it wasn't a secret because he was asking me to pray for this child because of the problems that it was going to be facing. And they weren't sure how they were going to financially care for all the medical bills and stuff that were going to be coming their way, but they were just trusting God. And so everybody's praying. Everybody knows this is going on in, in that community. And then, boom, this happens. So God does still uh, move and speak, but we, but when, when we get into trouble, is when, well, the, Holy, the Bible clearly says something, and then somebody says, well, yeah, but the Holy Spirit told me. Yeah, but what you think the Holy Spirit told you is, is going against what it says on the written, uh, the written words of the page. That wasn't the Holy Spirit. So there are some times when we can know for sure that what we thought we heard wasn't God. Because you've got to test it against the actual 
inerrant, authoritative word of God. Anyway, I went off with a long story there, but I think that's a cool story. I'm not sure how well known it is, but it should be better known than it is. That's for sure. Um, and it'd be easy. It's easier to tell whether God's speaking the more time you do spend talking to God. If you never really pray, or you just occasionally open your Bible, and then all of a sudden you hear this word, you know, it's going to be harder to tell whether it's actually God talking. But if you're constantly immersed in the Word of God in prayer and scripture reading, and fellowship with other believers then it'll be easier to tell. I mean, look at Abraham. God said, go up to the mountain and sacrifice Isaac. Like, and he like, knew. And it's like the, the story they say about how they train bank tellers to recognize counterfeits. They don't try to show them all the different counterfeits, right? They try to make them expert at recognizing what authentic $100 bills look like and $20 bills look like. So they could, they're so familiar with the authentic that they recognize the frauds. Mm -hmm. So you've got to be in the Word, reading the Bible regularly so that you can recognize more readily God's voice. And then if he's speaking to you uh, in a more direct kind of uh, through a vision or dream or something, because I think that can still happen, how do you know it's him and not something else that's you know, something bad you ate for dinner or some sort of spiritual uh, attack on you? There's other things that could be going on there. But if you're really familiar with the authentic word of God, I, I, you'll be able to suss that out quite a bit better, I think. Did, I don't think I read Article 18 yet. Did I or did I? We affirm that the text of Scripture is to be interpreted. Oh, yes, yes. I did. We have to define these terms. So, uh, interpreted by grammatico historical exegesis. You're smart. You want to define those terms, Daniel? Well, grammatico historical <laughs> exegesis. Exegesis is the idea that you're going through line by line in Scripture, not just searching for a topic or a point and and going high and low to find a little bits of Scripture that that talk about it. You take your passage and you read it for what it is in context. Right. It, yeah, it has to do with taking out of the text what the text is meaning to say as opposed to reading, reading your, into the text, yeah. which is called eisegesis as opposed to exegesis. Eisegesis is reading in, exegesis is reading out of the actual text. Right. So you don't come in with your own presupposed right. uh, notions of what it should be. I know we just spoiled everybody's reading plan for the year right now because that's what you've been doing. Come on, let's be honest. You're reading the Bible in a year and you're doing all sorts of eisegesis. Stop it. <laughs> well, I, we could argue that eisegesis would be a day age theory. We'll get to that later. Um, <laughs> you but, could also argue that insisting on a literal twenty-four hour time frame could be eisegesis. That could go either way. That's that's what I'm suggesting in I, my argument. But anyway, you can suggest it. <laughs> but, but you are errant, Troy, in suggesting that. All right, <laughs> and I'm okay with you being in error on accusing me of errancy. <laughs> <laughs> so grammatical historical. What is grammatical historical means? Meaning. Uh, lo looking at what the grammar and, and, and is saying and what the style of writing and the time in which it was written and who it was written to originally, not that it doesn't apply to you, but the, the context of uh, what, what was the story around how this text was written at the time. But what did those words mean when it was written? Right. So in American jurisprudence, we, we, we have a term called, uh, you know, traditional, uh, traditionalist or... Um, you know the, the what do they call it um, a constitutional uh, traditionalist where you're you are interpreting the constitution based on what the founders thought as they were writing it not based on what you think when you read the same words today it's a similar thing in the bible you should look at what it would have been understood at the time and how I understand some of these terms too like grammatico gets to what I was saying I don't know if I'm getting confused though when I said what I said and I think it was last week's show about how to define literal and to me, the way I define literal is this, grammatico. 
grammatically, what is it saying? What do the words mean in their in the context of their usage, in the broader context of that author, in the broader context of the whole Bible, uh, and also in the historical situation? And I would even put a fine point, a finer point on that. And I don't think that the writers of this statement disagree with me necessarily. They might, I don't know, but history meaning what? I would say an even finer point is redemptive historical context is really uh, an important thing to keep in mind. How is this talking about the progression of God's revelation as it points to uh, the, the need of and the provision by uh, Jesus Christ at the cross? Because there's this redemptive history, there's this arc, this meta-narrative throughout the Bible that is centered on that point in history. And when we understand that, that helps us to really grapple with what the scriptures are meaning to say. You know, Jesus uh, says in John chapter 5 and then echoes it in Luke chapter 24, the, Old Te- the whole Bible, including the Old Testament, is about him. So if we understand it's about him and his redemptive purposes in history, and we bring that to bear on what we're reading, we can much better understand, oh, so we don't make the mistake of thinking, oh, it must be saying this and the Bible is wrong. No, it's not even saying that. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the redemption of God's people. It's not trying to make a, a scientific claim. It's trying to make a, a moral claim or a, or a, a, a redemptive historical claim. Uh, that can help us to put the right context on this. That's how I understand some of that. Uh, what about this last thing? All these efforts we see of people who are trying to disprove the Bible. and they, Aha! We found a tablet buried 18 feet under the sand in the Middle East that uh, says that uh, you know King David was actually the third king of Israel kind of thing. See? And they're trying to delegitimatize the, is that a word? The, uh, the Bible uh, with something like that. But when they've done something like that, if you just wait a little while, those get debunked every single time. Right? There was a mm-hmm. misunderstanding or they didn't find what they thought they found or it was just an outright hoax. A, r- a really good example of that is the idea that the timing of Jericho and the uh, coming out of Egypt is all off by a couple hundred years, and the Bible was wrong by a couple hundred years. There's a really great documentary that came out recently called The Patterns of Evidence, Exodus Patterns of Evidence, which I highly recommend, and it goes through that. For about a hundred years, a lot of the scientists and archaeologists were so sure they had disproved the Bible, saying all the, all the history was off by a couple hundred years because it didn't match up with their understanding of Egyptian chronology and all the writings that they found in Egypt. And it turns out, they were wrong. God was right. And, you know, it's, it's starting to come back. And if people have... Now. Oh, go ahead, David. I was just going to say, yes, yeah, so not, and not only can we, we make mistakes in our interpretation of Scripture, but uh, you're saying, like, scientists and historians can also make mistakes in their interpretation of sure. things that they see and observe. And that, if that hasn't been demonstrated very clearly, particularly over the last three years, then nobody's ever going to admit to that. That's just the way it is. <laughs> All right, final article, 19. We affirm that a confession of the full authority, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture is vital to a sound understanding of the whole of the Christian faith. We further affirm that such confession should lead to increasing conformity to the image of Christ. We deny that such confession is necessary for salvation. However, we further deny that inerrancy can be rejected without grave consequences both to the individual and to the church. So... They're saying that this is not evidence of whether somebody's actually a believer in Christ or not. Somebody could be could have a lower view of Scripture than they should have, and they could still somehow be saved. But boy, that's a tenuous, uh, dangerous place for a person to be. That's kind of what they're saying there. Do we agree with that? I think uh, I think John one gives me that impression when 
Jesus is the Word, and the Word made flesh. And so, uh, right, to hold the Word of God in any less, uh, yeah, in any less value than Christ himself is real it, dangerous. The, the, the important thing for us to, to remember, you know, the gospel is, about, you know, we're all made with incredible value. So why we tend to be, as Christians, very, uh, very, very active in, in the, the abortion issue. Uh, yet we're all broken, frail, fallen, sinful people. <laughs> and so therefore we need to uh, uh, have that rectified and it's done in Christ. If we understand that, you're a Christian. You can get a lot of other things wrong and still be a Christian. But what they're saying in this statement here is, do you really want to get all those other things wrong, though? Like, If you want to really have the fullness of what Christian teaching is, the fullness of what the Word has revealed to us about himself, then you need to trust what these words on the page of the Bible say. That's how I'm reading what they're saying here. I think part of what they're saying, too, is that uh, right, the only way for us to know about Jesus is through the Word. And so if we are not saying, yes, I believe that the word is true and all of it, then, you know, it's, it's hard to say, do you, do you believe just the right parts are true in order to know Jesus and be saved? That's, I think that's what the, the grave consequences could be. Yeah, the word, but it could be, I think, a caveat maybe, it could be the word preached and heard as opposed to the word read, right? Somebody could come to a saving understanding and acceptance of Christ based on hearing the word spoken as opposed to reading their Bible and trusting it as an errant. Right. 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 I but, think you can certainly be saved without having read the Bible. I mean, people could have a response to a missionary preaching yeah. and they haven't read the Bible. They may not even be able to read, but you can certainly become a Christian. I've, yeah, I'm. I'm saying just that. Then, when we do encounter Scripture, we should treat it as right. Absolutely. Yeah, now, I, I would go so now, far as to say, you know, you don't have to uh, read the Bible or even have heard the Bible necessarily, because mm-hmm. God saves who He's going to save, now, <laughs> regardless. It, and it says <laughs> yeah. we but, de- we deny that confession of infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture is necessary for salvation. Yeah. In so much as there's very little that's necessary for salvation, you have to affirm that. Christ alone through his blood is what saves you, right? This is, that's how you're going to heaven. It's, it's by faith in Christ. You're justified by faith, not by works, not by anything else. And that's what you have to believe. But if anything, you know, is, is important at all, in addition to that, it would, it would be this, the inerrancy of scripture, because that's what everything else hangs. And you'd be a very sad Christian indeed if if you are somehow saved but don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And I think that once somebody comes to a place where they recognize that they're trusting Christ and his provision for their salvation, they want to learn more about him. They want to read the love letter that you referred to it as being uh, early on, right, Daniel, a couple weeks right. ago. It's a love letter. You, you want to hear from this, this God who made you, who loves you so much, so that you can honor him better and stuff. So you're going to be drawn to his word, that sort of thing. So I didn't mean to say that, oh, the Bible is irrelevant. No, no. If you're a Christian, you should be drawn. You should want to read it. If you, if you call yourself a Christian and you don't really make time, you don't want to read his word like at all, ever, something's a little wrong there. You need to kind of check yourself and see what's really going on in your heart, maybe, would be my. Anyway, we got mm-hmm. to wrap it up. We got like less than 30 seconds, I think. This is the faith debate. 
Uh, the one who just mm-hmm, in agreement with me was uh, David Forsey, pastors of church uh, south of Frederick. Uh, if you want to contact him, contact me. Uh, the Razvies, Daniel and Imran, have a church in Thermont. If you want to contact them, you can either go through me or go to conqueredbylove.org. If you want to contact me, it's householdoffaithinchrist.com. Till next week, God bless. <laughs>